You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 65, verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you've prepared it. You water its furrows, abundantly settling its ridges, softening with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning. We pray that, Father, you would enlighten our hearts that we would come to understand what you have determined to teach us through this particular passage of Scripture. We pray, Father, that, Lord, we would come to hear your voice from these words, that we would come to see your, your purposes. We would, in a sense, come to see the mind of the Holy Spirit as we study this text. And we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, that, Father, our hearts would be aligned, that they'd be empowered, that they'd be encouraged by the words that we have here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've been uh, really excited about uh, preaching on Thanksgiving this year because, you know, every time we have a session meeting, we're reminded of how much we have to be uh, thankful for and uh, it, it's really amazing. At a uh, at a funeral recently, I spoke with a pastor uh, who uh, confided in me. He said, "You know, our our church really just hasn't rebounded uh, from the COVID years. We're just we've been struggling ever since." And and um, my heart really goes out to him and goes out to his congregation. And I hear that frequently, actually. Um, and then you we go to our session meetings and and. Uh, we're just so encouraged, you know, let us return Thanksgiving to the Lord for the ways that he, been, he has been blessing us. You know, we, we went through those couple of years, and I think all of you agree with me, there are a couple of years you'd just like to forget ever happened. Um, but God has taken us through those years, and he strengthened us through that time. You know, our, our giving is really strong. Um, we're not without our problems. I mean, we're... We're a group of sinners, right? And when you have a group of sinners together, you're going to have problems. Um, as soon as you let me in, you're going to have one of them, actually more than one. 
we're, we're, not a, we're not a church without problems, but we are a church that God has really, really been blessing. And I have wanted to, you know, go to a, a, a psalm of thanksgiving and, and really just spend some time on that subject. And Psalm 65 is indeed one such psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. You know, it's just a couple of items of housekeeping we could get out of the way. You know, it's, its structure has been divided in different ways. Generally speaking, most commentators, at least the ones that I've been, um, that, that I have been able to look at, We'll divide the psalm into three strophes, and you'll see the ESV translators are doing that. Verses 1 through 4 is 1, 5 through 8 is a second one, 9 through 13. And you can see that by the spaces between verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 9. You have those spaces where you have these three sections. Other commentators divide in half. Uh, I won't take you into a whole lot of that. Um, what I'm really building up to say is, in my own mind, I, as I've looked at Psalm 65, you see the first words, praise is due to you. And it seems to me that what the psalmist is doing is he's saying praise is due to you. And then he spends the rest of the psalm saying why praise is due. And I was really happy to, to discover that one of the last commentaries I read is a commentary that's been produced by the Banner of Truth. It's in the, new, it's in the Geneva study series. And um, it's a commentary that was done by David Dixon way back in the day. I think David Dixon, I have a couple quotes from him. Uh, David Dixon was a Scottish preacher. I think he was born around 1583, something like that. He, he'd had a successful pastorate for many years. God had blessed his ministry. He was a professor of divinity, and I think in uh, Glasgow and in Edinburgh uh, as well. And uh, what was interesting is one of the last commentaries I looked at and he, he divides the psalm up this way. First, we're given praise. Then we're given the reasons. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> and, and he gives nine reasons. I'm not going to try to number them this morning because we probably could all come up with a different number as we study this. But let's start with praise is due to you. You know, that's how the psalm starts. Praise is due to you. Now, this particular praise is a praise that is issuing from a heart that's full of thanks. You know, it's a heart that's full of thanks in our session meetings. You know, one of the things we do, some of you have been to our session meetings, you know, one of the reports that's given every time is a treasurer's report. And i got to tell you, I, I, if we've had 12 meetings this year, we've stopped 12 times just to stop dead in our tracks in that, in, in, in that meeting, and we have thanked the Lord for blessing us the way he has blessed us. You know, and, and that thanksgiving is full of praise. You know, a heart of thanksgiving is going to be a heart that is full of praise, isn't it? When you're thankful for something, your heart is praising, isn't it? And we're told that praise is due to you. If you have an ESV open, you'll notice there's a footnote there. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it has an alternate translation. In fact, a more little or literal translation would be praise waits for you in silence. And this has caused, if you turn to commentaries on this psalm, you're going to see there's going to be probably going to be a number of paragraphs, maybe even pages on this particular issue uh, where they go back and forth. Should we, should we translate a praise is due to you or should we translate a praise uh, waits for you in silence? And I don't think we have to make a choice here. 
You know, let's think about it for a moment. There's a story that I think illustrates this really well. It's a story about the queen of Sheba who comes to see Solomon. Some of you would be familiar with that story. She heard about the wisdom of Solomon. She heard about the blessing of, of Solomon's house, the blessing, the way that, the, that Solomon's God has blessed Solomon and his people. So she, she makes the journey to go see for herself. And we're told that when she sees Solomon and hears his wisdom and sees his attendance and all of the, 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 the beauty and all of the ways that he has been blessed, we're told that there's no breath left in her. Now, in the moment where there's no breath left in her, she's obviously silent during that moment. Is she devoid of praise in that moment? And the answer, of course, is No. In fact, I think sometimes when we keep our mouths shut, maybe then there's actually more praise in our hearts. You know, if you think of a time when you've been praying for weeks or months or even years for God to do something in your life, something that's really important to you, and it almost just seems like he hasn't been listening, or it almost seems like, okay, the answer is no, and then all at once, you see the answer to your prayers, In that moment, you're likely to be speechless for a few minutes. But in those few minutes when you're speechless, are you devoid of praise? No, your praise could actually be most intense in those few minutes that you're speechless. And I think that's the idea here. You know, praise is due to you. I mean, this is in the aftermath of the speechlessness. Does that make sense? And the psalmist says, praise is due to you. Who is you? Oh, God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. You know, in the Old Testament economy, we see a lot of, of, of words about vows and, and uh, the, the making of vows and the performance of vows. And I think what we could see from here is, here the psalmist is saying, listen, there's going to be a measured response from me. You know, it's not just thanksgiving that I, and, and praise that I'm going to offer you, but in response to what you've done for me, in response to the ways that you've blessed me, I am going to put forth this measured response, if you will. Uh, to you shall vows be performed. I mean, I think we, we march to the step of this as we recommit our hearts and lives to, to the Lord, you know, um, and hopefully that's, that's something we can do right now and something that we can leave here with this morning is a renewed sense of, God, you've been so good to us. We're not without our struggles, but you're with us in all these struggles. You know, man, when I leave here, I'm going to reflect you. I want to reflect you, Lord. I want to leave here differently than when I came in. Notice verse 2, and this will give us, I think verse 2 is so wonderful. I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time in verses 2, 3, and 4. It's probably going to be a little bit lopsided. I, think, I don't think you're going to mind. But in verse 2, notice the psalmist ascribes to God as he who hears prayer. O oh, you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Let's camp out here for a moment because the psalmist is telling us that there's telling us something about God. And one of the questions that we should ask of a passage of Scripture we're studying is, what do we learn about God in this particular passage of Scripture? What do we learn about Him? Well, we learn that He is a God who hears prayer. And the great theologians and pastors of old have one step further with this to show us rightly that it's God's nature. 
In fact, it's even a property of God, if you want to use some of their language. I have a couple of quotes where one pastor uses the word property. Um, he uses the word nature. It's God's nature. It's his property to hear prayer and to answer it. You know, this is why Calvin can say this. You know, He says, God might as soon deny himself as shut his ears to our petitions. Did you get that? He might as soon deny himself as shut his ears to our petitions. What is Calvin talking about? What he's talking about is it's of God's nature to hear prayer and to answer it. It's his very nature to do so. So for him not to do so, he's denying his very nature. Does that make sense? Calvin continues, could we only impress this on our minds, that it is something peculiar to God and inseparable from him to hear prayer? He goes on to say it would inspire us with unfailing confidence. Boy, what a word that is. It's just something we need to understand about the very nature of God is he is a God who hears prayer and in hearing prayer. When the, when the biblical author talks about hearing prayer, it's understood that he's answering prayer as well. He's hearing prayer. He's answering prayer. Part of his nature. It's part of his nature to do so. Calvin is saying if we can impress that upon our minds, we'd have much more confidence to go to him in prayer. David Dixon, who I've already spoke of, he says... Quote, the hearing and granting of prayer are the Lord's property. That sounds like a 16th century Scotsman, doesn't it? It's the Lord's property, you know? That's his property and his usual practice and his pleasure and his nature and his glory. As we think about God answering prayer and the speechlessness that it brings upon us when he does so, he's never being more glorified by us than in those moments when we can't even speak because of what he has just done. It is his glory to hear prayer. It is his glory to answer prayer. It's part of his nature. He might as well deny himself as to deny the listening and the hearing of prayer. Now, I want to add something to this. Let's think about this. As we're thinking about God's nature and answering prayers being part of his nature, let's think about, you know, the story we have where Moses, you know, at one point. He's, Moses had a difficult ministry, didn't he? That's an understatement. And at one point he says, Lord, in, in Exodus 33, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. He puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, and then he, he covers his face so warmly and so fatherly because if Moses were to see too much of his glory, it would destroy him. So he covers his face, and he passes by and exposes Moses to just enough of his glory as Moses can withstand at that point. And what does God say as he's passing Moses? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, compassionate, and uh, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. Now, let's think about that for a moment. God says that it is his glory to be merciful, right? How is his mercy exercised? It's often exercised this way as he hears us cry out to him. We've got a friend with some blood clots, Lord. We've got friends who are grieving, our God is merciful. It's 
part of his nature to hear those cries. He's gracious. Think about the grace. How does he exercise his grace? He exercises his grace in hearing and listening to us. How gracious is that? Because I, quite frankly, we would be pretty fed up with us by now, wouldn't we? Oftentimes we think God's like us and we think, oh my goodness, God, you should be good and fed up with me by now. If God was one of us, it would have been a long time ago he'd have been good and fed up with us. God is not like us. He exercises graciousness towards us, doesn't he? He hears our prayer. He's compassionate. Jesus demonstrates all of this, doesn't he? We see the compassion that Jesus demonstrates when he sees the crowds. What a group. Look at this group. Most of us say, oh, no, look at this mob that's coming. Let's get out of here. Jesus sees the crowd, and he has compassion on them. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. How does he know that? Because he listens to them. He knows them perfectly. He listens to all their cries. He knows, he knows the things that are going right in their lives. He knows the many things that are going wrong in their lives, and he knows all their hurts. What does he do? He shows compassion on them. And how does he exercise that compassion? Much of the time, that compassion is exercised by hearing our prayers and by answering our prayers. It's part of his nature. To not do that would be to deny himself, says Calvin, right? How about slow to anger? He's slow to anger. That means he's patient with us. He's really patient with us. Abounding in steadfast love. That's another one. All of these are subjects for a whole sermon. Each one of these things. There's, there's probably six or eight sermons already mentioned here this morning. You know, we've got to move on. But think about his steadfast love, his faithfulness. He doesn't withdraw it. His covenant love, if you will. Oh, to you, oh, you who hears prayer. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. Why is it due to you? Why should we offer such thanksgiving? Because he hears us. He listens to us. He prays. And here we have this prophecy, to you shall all flesh come. There's lots of things that could be said about this. One of the things that I want to draw on, and it's, it's kind of incidentary to this, it's a, it's, it's, it's a little bit off to the side, but I don't think you'll mind, but it's the witness of prayer. Oftentimes, I don't think we think about the fact that prayer is actually a witness to this dying world. You know, if you keep your place in Psalm 65 for a moment and turn to Deuteronomy 4, I think we can... I can make the case here pretty quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You find that on page 148 if you're using the church's Bible. And a lot of times when we read this chapter, we think mainly of um, hearing God's laws and obeying God's laws and how the hearing of God's laws and obeying God's laws is a witness to the dying world. And that's 100% on. I think we missed something in this, though. There's something else going on here. If you look at verse 5, Moses is speaking. Moses says, see, I have taught you. Who's you? That's the Israelites. That's his people. He's, you know, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 6, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So you see the witness of this? In other words, when you go into this land, follow my laws, and those laws will be your wisdom, and your wisdom will not go unnoticed by all the people that are around you. They will see this wisdom. 
I think it's usually in our minds, we're, we're taking this in, and, and I think we miss verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? I, this is revolutionary to understand that the idea that we have a God that is so near to us, in fact, in the Christian economy, what is he doing? He's dwelling in our hearts. That's how near he is to the believer that he hears us when we call to him, and he answers us when we call to him. And that's a witness to this dying world. We take prayer requests all the time from people of all kinds of descriptions, don't we? People, you know, majority of which are unbelieving. They have yet to bow their knees to the Lord. And oftentimes, I mean, if we think back, some of us who've been here for a long time, Think back over the last 10 years, if you will, of how many times we've prayed for people and God has answered those prayers. We've prayed for people with cancer and God has taken cancer away. We've prayed for people who have been in this particular situation or that particular situation and God has answered. He's answered in such a way that it's really clear that he has answered. And what an incredible witness that is to everyone. We might not see immediate results, but seeds are being planted. Seeds are being planted for sure. I, I, I give you a quick example here. You know, this evening, probably about 20 to 7, I'm going to be spending some time with some guys that I've been spending time with now for almost three years. And these guys, they have a very dangerous job, as you well know. They work in those gates. And I go out to what they call the gatehouse, and there's a, there's a little building I go out there, and I, 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 twice a week I go out and I spend time with these guys. I have shared devotions with them. As we get a little closer to Christmas, I'll probably uh, share some Christmas devotions with these guys. Um, but most of the time, all I do is hang out with them. They always have the, the TV on. They have the game on. Um, one thing I do every time when I'm with them is I pray for them. That wasn't easy to get going. They didn't really know what to do with me when I first started going out there. But I had one of them scold me the other day. He was outside of the gatehouse on his phone, off in the yard. It was very clear he was on a private call. I didn't want to bother him. That's probably what most of us would have done. The body language and everything said, okay, he's got something going on, but I thought I can still pray for him. He doesn't have to be in there to be prayed for. I went in, visited with the guys for a little bit, and as much as they like that ball game, they mute that ball game. They turn that ball game off so I can pray for them. And we pray, and I come out. And this guy goes, hey, it's time for prayer. I said, well, relax. We already got it covered. He goes, well, I wasn't in there. I said, it's okay. You don't have to be. Oh, that's all the more I got out of my mouth. And as he's scolding me, I'm rejoicing. Him, he's giving me the business. He goes, that's not what you do. What you do in the future is you come and get me and you bring me in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> I mean, if, if this is what I'm in trouble for, all right. You know, I'll be, I'll be happy to be in trouble every, every time I come down here. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is that prayer is a witness. You see, if the hearing of prayer and the answering of prayer is part and parcel of the very nature of God, then prayer itself by his people, is a witness to the nature of God. Do you see where I'm going with this? 
So we, we probably would be much happier to share the gospel in there and see two or three people give their lives for Christ. Well, we'd like to see things sped up that fast. But a lot of times when we're, when we're witnessing to people, we're witnessing to people that have absolutely no church background in their history. You're at ground zero here. You're just planting seeds in people's lives. These men have come to know that twice a week they're getting prayed for. Um, my point is it's a witness. Don't be afraid to pray for the, the people that are around you. Maybe they don't have an appetite for the gospel, but you can say to them, listen, can I pray for you? Can we pray right now? Let me pray for you. They, at, the, at the start, they'll be really uncomfortable. You should have been in that guard shack the first few times I did that out there. It was very awkward and uncomfortable. But most people like it when they're prayed for. Amen? Praise is due to you. Back to Psalm 65. We're ever going to get through this psalm. I'm going to have to pick up the speed a little bit. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed, O you who pierce prayer, and to you shall flesh come. I want to spend some time on verse 3. I don't think you'll mind. Notice what the psalmist says. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. What does that mean? One of the key words here is the word prevail. What does the word prevail mean? It means to rise, to flood. Uh, to overcome, to overwhelm, if you will. Alec Mathieu, um, he, uh, in his um, uh, commentary, uses these two expressions. One is overpowered, but the one I really like the most is gripped in the mastery of sin. Gripped in the mastery of sin. If we take that and we go to verse 3 with that, when we're gripped in the mastery of sin, you atone for our transgressions. You know, in this life, we can find ourselves gripped in the mastery of sin. And someone will say, well, how could I know if I'm gripped in the mastery of sin? I think one of, the, one of the ways to know if you're gripped in the mastery of sin is to know that there's something wrong in your heart, but you don't desire to change it. If there's something wrong in your heart and you don't really desire to change it, you're gripped in the mastery of it, aren't you? And um, what are we to do when we find ourselves in that position? We're to ask the Lord to change our hearts. I mean, that's the first way. It seems to me that that's the first thing that has to happen. When we're gripped in the mastery of sin, we... we you know, the whole point is we are, we're stuck here. We're, the, the, the grip is too strong for us. We can't break free of it of our own. We don't even want to. You know, a lot of times, you know, addiction by definition is this, you know. But let's not limit it to addiction. You know, withholding forgiveness. Not desiring reconciliation. I mean, we can go down the line. We can go down. I mean, oh my goodness, there's a thousand things we could put in here. But let's ask ourselves, do we want it to change? That's a great diagnostic to, to see. How, how strong is this thing have a hold of me? Well, ask yourself this question, do I want it to change? Uh-oh, I don't even want it to change. Well, then what do we do? First thing, first thing, first thing, first thing, first thing. I think this is the most important thing. Let's not let our sin drive us away from God. Because that's our natural reaction, isn't it? 
Oh, Lord, I don't even want this to change. So what do we think we're going to do? We're going to run over here in the corner until we can change it ourselves and then come back? That's what the devil would have us to do. That isn't going to be successful. That's not going to succeed. You're not going to do it. So what do we do? We let our sin humble us because that's what it needs to do. All right, Lord, I am this kind of person. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Okay, Lord, I don't want it to change. Change it for me. Change it for me. Let's not let our sin drive us away from the Lord, but let our sin drive us towards him because he is the Savior. Where do we get the strength to do that? Well, I think I see it in verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, when I'm gripped in the mastery of sin, you atone for our transgressions. What's it mean to atone for our transgressions? He covers them. He covers them. Other words here I could use. Um, He erases them. How about this one? Erased by paying the debt. Erased by paying the debt. The, 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 The desire to not want to change is part of the sin, isn't it? It's that devilish heart that doesn't want to change. It's that devilish heart that the Lord is working on. First of all, it's no surprise to God. It's not like you got this little secret that he doesn't know about. He knows quite well about it. He knew that when he drew you to him in the first place. In fact, he knows about a lot more sin than we're aware of. But look at the verse. What does it say? When we're gripped in the mastery of sin, you atone for our transgressions. In other words, he takes them away. He atones for them. In the Old Testament economy, animal sacrifices were brought in. These animal sacrifices didn't take the sins away. These animal sacrifices served to point to him who ultimately would come and take sin away. We dwell in a new economy where we look back to the Savior. Nobody had to bring any sheep in here this morning, and I'm quite thankful for that. Nothing against the sheep, but I'm always thankful for that because I didn't have to slaughter anything this morning. I don't like slaughtering things. Jesus' death on the cross fulfills all that, but Jesus' death on the cross takes it away. His death on the cross takes it away. We're going to get nowhere with our sin until we understand that his death on the cross takes it away. And part of it is the desire to want to change. He has to work in our hearts to make us desire to want to change. Don't be afraid to go to him with these awful desires. Because first of all, you're not taking him by surprise. He already knows. Yet he still loves you. That should be wonderful news. should be wonderful news. And it's a crystal truth to embrace You know, if we're going to overcome sin, which is holding mastery over us, realizing that it's been covered, erased, eradicated, so that we're cleansed of its defilement means everything. We're not not fighting to gain God's favor. We're fighting with his favor. We're standing in his favor. We're standing in his empowerment. Does that make sense? It makes all the difference in the world. We're not fighting for his favor. It's not like we're going to fight and as soon as we get to a certain place, he's going to say, there you go, that a boy, that a girl. Now we can get somewhere. No. He's saying right now, that a boy, that a girl. Let's go. Let's fight this thing. Does it make sense? 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We sing that sometimes, don't we? It's a gospel truth. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. What a wonderful verse is that. That's speaking of election, isn't it? You know, God drives, draws us to himself in such a way that we think we're doing the whole thing, you know, and, and we do. We, God doesn't do the believing for us. We believe, but we only believe in response to his grace in our hearts, don't we? Blessed is the one who chooses rightly and comes near. Is that what our verse says? Well, he is, and she is blessed who chooses rightly and come. But our verse tells us, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. It's God who has to touch our hearts. It's God who has to open our hearts. It's God who has to open up our minds. It's God who has to open up our ears. It's God who has to open up our eyes so we can see that it's in our best interest to turn from the promises and deceitfulness of sin in order to embrace God, isn't it? He has to do all that work. Jesus puts it simply this way. You know, unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God, can he? And we think that's, that's just John 3 stuff. No, it's Psalm 65 stuff too. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Have you been brought near to the Lord? Ask yourself that question. Has he drawn you near? Then you are the blessed one. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. What courts? The rest of the psalm, the rest of the verse rather, explains uh, it's the temple, your house. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. In the Old Testament economy, God's presence is represented by the temple, isn't it? And the closer you get to the temple, the nearer you are to God, right? Now, look at the rest of the verse there. Verse, uh, the, you see the second half of verse 4? We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You know, at first you can scratch your head and say, what does that mean? But let's think about what goes on in God's house in this Old Testament economy. What's happening? Well, what's happening is worship is taking place. God's presence is near. Sacrifices are being offered. In other words, worship is happening in response to God's grace, his gracious presence, and in response to the salvation that's being offered through the atoning sacrifices, right? Does that make sense? Now, what we're doing this morning, and we're not offering sacrifices but what we're doing this morning is very much modeled after this synagogue. I don't know if anybody's ever put that together, but why do we do what we do? I mean, why do we have a call to worship? Why do we sing songs? Why do we, why do we read, systematically read the Word and preach the Word? Why do we do all of this? Because God prescribes it in Scripture. This is the way that God wants to be worshipped. And we find that pattern in the ancient synagogue. Does that make sense? So what takes place in God's house, so to speak? Well, in God's house, prayers are being offered. In God's house, songs are being sung. In short, God is being worshipped. God promises to dwell with his people, so God's presence is near. And in this economy, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the, the, the salvation that has been given to us in Christ Jesus by his offering his self on the cross, Right? That makes sense? Okay. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. 
We. Okay, who is the we here? Obviously the ones who have been brought, who have been brought near by God's grace. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. And this actually issues in thanksgiving. Let's ask ourselves this question because one of the things we have here, if we want to ask ourselves this question, is our faith truly saving faith? Ask yourself this question. Do you find joy in public worship? Are you satisfied? Does public worship offer something that satisfies you? You know, if, if you're out trying to start Bible studies, which I'm always trying to do, one thing you'll find is that gener generally speaking, our population at large doesn't find studying the Bible all that thrilling. You don't believe me? This week I want you to do something. I want you to go out and start a Bible study with people that don't know the Lord. Not with not drawing people from other churches, people who don't know the Lord. Go out there and start. And what you're going to find generally speaking, is people aren't altogether thrilled about that until the Lord begins to work in their hearts. But as the Lord begins to work in their hearts, it's really fun to watch. It's one of my favorite things to do is to watch somebody whose eyes are just now starting to get opened a little bit, and they find it exciting, actually. They find it exciting. We could say that they're satisfied with the goodness of God's house. Jesus says, listen, a time is coming when you'll worship me neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You know, he says this to the, to the woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. A time is coming when we'll worship where two or three are gathered. Jesus is worshiped. Let's ask ourselves this question. Are we satisfied do we find public worship satisfied? You're going to find people all the time who claim to be believers in Christ. And you ask them about their church. Where's your church? Oh, yeah. Who's your pastor? What way are you serving the local? There is no church. There is no pastor. Generally speaking, all that there is is lip service. Please keep that in mind. It's people playing fast and loose with their sin. Why else? Has there been a taste? Has God implanted a taste in us for his worship? You see, if we love Jesus, we want to see him glorified, do we not? If we love the Lord, if we're thankful, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. If we're thankful, we want to see him glorified. You know, I give this advice. You know, Samantha was 11 years old when she came into my life, and I came into hers. And I spent a lot of time with Samantha. And I'll tell you, I want to share this with our young fathers, man. Spend a lot of time with your girls. Spend a lot of time with your girls, because when they start getting boy crazy, it'll pay off major dividends. Spend time with your girls. And one of the things, you know, that we want to implant in their minds is this. You're looking for somebody that can lead you spiritually. Not just somebody that says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Teach them to ask, do you believe in Jesus? Teach them that you can ask it in your own way, but do you believe in Jesus? Come on now. Fellas will put their best foot forward when they're courting. Of course I believe in Jesus. If that's what it takes to get you to go to the movies with me, you better believe I believe in anything. But here's a question. Here's a few questions that we can ask. Where's your church? Where's your church? 
What church do you, not what church do you go to, what church do you belong to? Who's your pastor? How have you been serving that church? Those are questions that can just be asked very casually, but think about it. You know, we want to instill in these young girls as they get older, we want to instill in their hearts, you're looking for somebody who takes church seriously. That's the only somebody that can lead you and lead your family in the times ahead. Think about the heartache that can be bypassed with that advice. Spend time with your daughters. This same thing, of, of, you know, guys are thinking, you know, Isaac's sitting back, I'm off the hook. No, the same thing applies to you, my young man. You know, the same thing applies, you know. Um, the same thing applies. Do you find satisfaction in the goodness of your house, in the holiness of God's house? It's a simple question, isn't it? And it's a yes or it's a no, isn't it? Sometimes, every, every once in a while, Someone will come to me and they'll ask if I, if I want to get involved in their wedding, and I'll, I'll ask a couple of questions. And we have a marriage policy that we put together that really insulates me. I haven't had very many problems since we put that together. I used to have a lot of trouble in this area. And they've come, you know, would you do our wedding? And they already have the whole thing planned. Sometimes the wedding's only three weeks away, and they want to know if I'm going to officiate it. Three weeks away. First of all, I don't know you. I don't know your fiancé. A lot of times it's the lady that's coming to me, and I'm wondering, where's he? Why isn't he coming to me? Why are you coming to me? How come he isn't coming to me? That tells me a lot. Why are you coming to me? Why isn't he coming to me? It's a problem. I mean, maybe the best thing is both of you come to me. Why is Well, we already got the the place. We got the date. We got the whole nine yards, you know. Uh, Well, okay. Well, all right. Generally speaking, when she's the one that's contacting me, she's maybe gone to church or has a church background. So I'll say to her, okay, well, what's, you know, your fiancé? Where's he at with Jesus? Well, you know, he's, he's coming along. He's open. He's open. See, we can circumvent that. We want to circumvent that in the household, and we want to do so early. Does that make sense? Fathers, it will save you a lot of heartache It'll save you a lot of heartache. So I could spend a lot more time. You see, each one of these is sermons, but I don't think you wanted me to do six months in Psalm 65, right? Can we do just a little more? By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Notice how God is being addressed here. He's being addressed as the God of our salvation. What's that tell us? Salvation tells us that perhaps they've been, they've been enduring some danger or they've been enduring sin, or uh, you could probably eat your cake, take your cake and eat it too and say they're, they're, they're in some kind of a dangerous situation because of their sin. All of these things are possible. Um, by awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. Now, um, awesome deeds with righteousness coupled with God of our salvation. In the psalmist, what does that typically recall? That re- typically recalls God's acts of, in salvation history. Probably the most popular would be the parting of the Red Sea, right? You come across that in the Psalter, don't you, as you read the Psalter. And what is the psalmist doing? I mean, much more could be said, but let me just give you the, just give you the short of it all. What's being said is the psalmist is looking back to these great deliverances, 
You know, God delivers. You know, Israel calls out. God's a God who hears prayer. Israel calls out. They call out and they cry out because they're, they're enslaved in Egypt, working these long days, making these bricks. And what does the Lord do? He answers them. And he, he afflicts Egypt with all those plagues. He delivers them out of Egypt, brings them. Here they are. They're parked in front of, a, uh, of the sea in front of them, and they got Pharaoh's army behind them, and it looks like they're toast. But what does God do? He does the unimaginable. He parts the sea, and they cross on dry land. Now, why would the psalmist be bringing that up? Why is he bringing that up? Because these great acts of old are meant to encourage us in the present. We'll say, well, that's something that God did way back in the day. That's not necessarily what he's doing now. God is the same today as he was yesterday, and he is forevermore, right? I think Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, Hebrews 13.8, he's the same. With him, there's no shadow of change, is there? He's exactly the same now as he was back then. And look at the pains he went to to deliver people, to deliver his people, he will take those same pains. Think about what Jesus has done in order to give us salvation. That far exceeds parting the Red Sea, does it not? I mean, it, infinitely so, it far exceeds the parting of the Red Sea. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth, the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. You know, here we're pointing to creation. Creation is also meant to encourage our faith. We give thanks to the Lord for creation. If he can simply speak and things come into view, he can answer our prayers, can he not? It's meant to encourage us. And in encouraging us, it creates thankfulness. In creating thankfulness, it issues into praise, doesn't it? He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. You know, the seas were emblematic to the ancients of chaos and evil, and the stilling of them showed that God was sovereign of them. This is what Jesus is up to. You know, when he's asleep in the fishing boat, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record for us the story. The disciples and Jesus are crossing the, Red, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. They're in this horrible storm, and they, they wake up Jesus. I mean, they're, they're convinced they're just about to drown. They wake up Jesus, and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And what does he do? He orders the whole thing still. What's the point of that? Showing that he's God. You still the roaring of the waves. Who? Who is you? Oh, God in Zion. Who is Jesus? Oh, God in Zion. You still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Why is that so important to us now? You know, my pastoral prayer talked about the world being somewhat of a powder keg right now. Many people are very anxious, and I think rightly so, about what's going on. It really is, it's a dangerous moment right now where you've got these, these you know, more than skirmishes, you've got these, these wars taking place. And what is this a result of? It's a result of the commotion, if you will. The tumult right there is basically commotion. It's the result of the commotion Unfortunately, it looks like it's the result of a relatively few people who have other agendas. I don't pretend to know what's going on, but that's what it looks like. And that's probably almost always the case when we have wars. But Jesus tells us there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. They're birth pains, right? But looky here, what do we have? We have the promise that one of these days the Lord's going to shut that all up. He's going to stop it. 
It's going to go on for a short period of time, but it's going to stop as the Lord brings in the new heavens and the new earth. Let us look to that day so that, verse 8, those who dwell at the ends of the earth will be in awe at your signs. Verse 9 through 13, we can do very quickly. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God, that is his, um, you know, the river of God is full of water. It's speaking of the rains and how important the rains are to an agricultural society. It's everything. So the river of God is his, you know, if you can imagine poetically a storehouse of rain, which God has in limited, unlimited supply that he can dispatch at any time. That is the river of God. And we can contemporize it by saying, Lord, you take care of us. You're not going to run out of sustenance for us. You take care of us. We could use the river of God. It's also an emblem of life, isn't it? The river of God gives us life. We have life. Verse 10, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its edges, softening with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. If you read commentaries, they'll often make reference to chariots in that verse, which I scratch my head. I understand they're looking at other Psalms and they're getting chariots, chariots riding on the clouds and stuff. But I got to be honest with you, I never saw that imagery. That doesn't mean it isn't there, but I'm just going to share this. This is just me talking, take it or leave it. But to me, wagon tracks, what I envision is a wagon that's so full of produce, it's leaving tracks in the dirt and stuff's rolling off the top of it. And usually when we think of Thanksgiving, that's kind of what we think about, right? I think it's simple as that. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valley decks themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Notice how all creation is is joyous here. This really isn't going to be fulfilled until the new heavens and the new earth because we're told right now all creation groans, doesn't it? All creation is groaning until when? Until the Lord brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And what we see is that even creation itself is going to be joining with the people of God in praise to God, isn't it? Why? Out of thanksgiving. Why? Because death is no more. I mean, we could, I, I think we got more than nine things. I don't know how many things have I mentioned. I didn't count them. I don't think anybody cares to count them. Who cares how many there are? We know there's a bunch, and there's many more that we haven't mentioned, isn't there? I think the last one is the best one. We'll be thankful that death has been defeated. Death is defeated in Christ. And we're all, if you're in Christ, you're headed to a future where death will be no more. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, so much more can be said about this glorious psalm of thanksgiving. And we find ourselves in a season of thanksgiving, Father, and we thank you. And it's thanksgiving that we do try to offer you this day, Lord. And our thanksgiving, Father, we, we pray that it will issue forth in praise. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. You're a God who hears prayer. When we're in the grip and mastery of sin, you atone for our transgressions, O Lord. You know, Father, you've brought us near to your house, and you've given us a taste for the things in the house of God, O Lord. And by your awesome deeds, you answer us. And what greater deed is there than the death and crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection three days later? Oh, Father, we thank you, and we look forward to the great resurrection, where the resurrection of your people, where we will be fit with new bodies and will be put in a new heaven and a new earth, where death will reign no more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.